Hi, I'm Robert Jeffress, and I'm glad to serve as your Bible teacher every day on this great radio station on today's edition of Pathway to Victory. The whole message of the Sermon on the Mount is how we're to live our life, not 2,000 years ago, but how to live in this world, and particularly how to live in your world. That's what we're going to discover in this sermon. And that leads to a discussion of how are we to interpret the Sermon on the Mount. Welcome to Pathway to Victory with author and pastor, Dr. Robert Jeffress. Did you know that you can read through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in just 18 minutes? It's true. In this power-packed message, Jesus challenges us to embrace a radical way of dealing with issues that matter most. And today on Pathway to Victory... Dr. Robert Jeffress begins to unpack Jesus' revolutionary teaching on 10 life-changing topics. Now, here's our Bible teacher to introduce today's message. Dr. Jeffress? Thanks, David, and welcome again to Pathway to Victory. Christians who love Jesus and the Bible have an unparalleled privilege. By that, I mean we have the opportunity to see with our own eyes the actual sites where Jesus walked and taught. And one of the most beautiful places is a hillside overlooking the Sea of Galilee, where Jesus delivered his famous Sermon on the Mount. Well, I would love to be the one who shows you this breathtaking sight. This coming spring, April 25 through May 5, you're invited to join us for the 2023 Pathway to Victory Tour to Israel. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount will take on a whole new meaning to you. But that's not all. Take a look at the incredible itinerary we prepared for you and make plans to join us by going to ptv.org. Well, today we're going to make a virtual trip to that hillside where Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount. Today we're beginning a brand new series based on my new book that releases today entitled 18 Minutes with Jesus, Straight Talk from the Savior About the Things That Matter Most. Most preachers like me have had a hard time preaching a sermon that's less than one hour, and yet Jesus addressed the things that matter most in less than 20 minutes. In fact, you can read the entire Sermon on the Mount in 18 minutes. And again, this is a new series on Pathway to Victory, and it corresponds to the brand new book entitled 18 Minutes with Jesus. And you can be among the first to receive your copy of my new book when your request includes a generous gift to support the growing ministry of Pathway to Victory. I'm going to say more about the topics I address in my book later on, but let's get started with the opening message in my new teaching series. This sets the stage for the entire month of October. I titled the first message, 18 Minutes with Jesus. A crowd gathers on a grassy hill overlooking the Sea of Galilee, eager to hear from the popular young rabbi whose radical teaching is unlike any rabbi they've ever heard. This rabbi speaks with authority. He heals the sick and rescues those possessed by demons. The scenic landscape soon becomes filled with men and women jostling for better places to sit in this natural amphitheater to hear what this teacher has to say. Silence descends over the crowd as the rabbi takes a seat and begins to speak. Shalom. As many of you know, my name is Jesus. 
welcome to my TED Talk. Now, he didn't exactly say that, but he could have. Many of you are familiar with TED Talks. They are short, informative talks about interests of global appeal. Uh, the TED Talks are organized in such a way that they transcend culture. What began 40 years ago as an idea is now a global sensation. Uh, this nonprofit organization, TED Talks, are devoted to, quote, spreading ideas that are worthwhile. And a few months ago, I began thinking, if Jesus came back to earth and he were invited to give a TED Talk, what would he say? And the answer became very clear to me. He would give the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount was Jesus' TED Talk, perhaps the first in history. The reason I say that is Jesus' Sermon on the Mount met the criteria required for a TED Talk. First of all, a TED Talk has to be short. It can't be more than 18 minutes. Well, you can read the Sermon on the Mount in 18 minutes. It has to be informative. That is filled with practical and sound advice for life. It has to be original. It has to be surprising and counterintuitive. It has to be engaging. That means it is witty and compelling. It has to be accessible. TED Talks are required to be free to anyone who wants to access them. And finally, they have to be globally appealing. They can't be restricted to one time or one culture, but for everybody. Doesn't the Sermon on the Mount meet those criteria? Well, today, we're going to look at Jesus' TED Talk we call the Sermon on the Mount. John Stott says the Sermon on the Mount is the most familiar and yet the least understood of all of Jesus' teaching. And I might add, it's also the least applied of all of Jesus' teaching. We're going to discover why in just a moment. But if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 5 as we begin our new series on the Sermon on the Mount, 18 Minutes with Jesus. Now, this Sermon on the Mount is actually recorded in two places in the Bible. It's in Matthew, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. It's also found in Luke chapter 6. And there are some obvious differences between the two accounts of the Sermon on the Mount that disturb some people. I mean, Matthew's account is longer. It's 107 verses. Luke's is only 30 verses. Each account contains material. The other account leaves out. And so it's caused people to wonder, is this an example of the Bible contradicting itself? Some of the alleged contradictions in the Bible. How are we to account for two accounts of the Sermon on the Mount? Well, some people say that these were actually two different sermons that Jesus preached on two different occasions to two different audiences. They're similar, but they're different. Now, those of us who are preachers, we do that all the time. I'm preparing a message right now, taking a sermon that I preached here a few weeks ago, 
that's going to be the core of it, but I'm changing the introduction. I'm changing the conclusion. This message is similar, but it's different. It's actually two messages in two different places. Some people say, well, that's what's going on here. Jesus was just using different material and some similar material in two different sermons. But most scholars believe that this is actually one sermon that Jesus preached on one occasion. So how do we account for the differences, the different wording in the two accounts? Is this an occasion in which the Bible contradicts itself? Not at all. And let me explain why. This will help you whenever people ask you about contradictions in the Bible. In the Greek language, there are no quotation marks. Did you know that? Quotation marks are big in the English language. When something is within quotation marks, it means this is literally, exactly, verbatim what was said. If it's not in quotation marks, it's a summary. For example, let's say my sister Jennifer were writing in her journal, and she said, I remember 40 years ago when our dad said, comma, quotation marks, don't get caught speeding If you do, you'll have to pay the fine, period, exclamation point, in quotation marks. And suppose I were to write in my journal, I remember our father saying that we should obey the law when we're driving, otherwise we'll experience the consequences. Now, are those two accounts contradictory? Not at all. My sister was giving a direct quote I was summarizing in an indirect quotation what my father said, but both are accurate representations of what our father had said. Now, that's very well what could be happening here. Perhaps Matthew gave a verbatim report. He was there for the Sermon on the Mount. Perhaps he gave a verbatim quotation of what was said. Perhaps Luke, who composed his gospel later, and did it not by first-hand experience, but by research, suppose he was giving a summary. Both accounts are accurate. Other scholars believe both Matthew and Luke were giving indirect quotations. They were summarizing what Jesus said, and they chose the parts they used according to the individual purpose of their specific gospel. It could have been that both were uh, indirect quotations. The important thing is what we have in our Bible is what God wants us to know. And it is an accurate, inerrant representation of what Jesus said. Which leads me to something I have to get off my chest right now. Uh, This week I received an email uh, from an unnamed smart aleck deacon. I won't use his name. But he said, Pastor... If it only took Jesus 18 minutes to preach this sermon, why is it taking you 10 weeks? I said, there's no mandate that says Jesus preached this in 18 minutes. He may have taken hours. He may have preached it over several days on that uh, uh, side of the Sea of Galilee. But what is important is what we have is what we can know, and we can read this in 18 minutes or less. Now, let's look at the setting for the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew says this is the first major ministry event of Jesus. It occurred after his baptism, after his temptation in the wilderness, after his calling of the disciples. 
This was the first thing that he did to prepare his disciples. Look at verse 23 of Matthew 4. Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. The news about Jesus spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all who were ill, those suffering from various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. Now, here's the point, verse 25. Large crowds followed Jesus from Galilee and the Decapolis and Jerusalem, Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Now, there's no chapter break in the original text. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. Large crowds are following Jesus. Verse 1, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he had sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and began to teach his disciples. Now, there are some people who believe that Jesus dismissed the crowds and just taught this sermon to his 12 apostles. I don't believe that's true. And the reason I don't believe that is at the end of the sermon, as we'll see today, Matthew seven twenty-eight, it says, and the crowds were amazed at his teaching. The crowds were still there, but it says that he taught his disciples. How are we to understand that? The word disciples, mathete in Greek, disciples, actually is used in two ways. There's a general sense in which the word disciple is used. To be a disciple means to be a follower. And there were literally masses of people following after Jesus at the beginning of his ministry. They were curious about him. They heard something about him. Some of them were mildly interested in knowing more about him. Some were already to devote their lives to him. He had a mixed crowd, large crowd, following him at this time. Of course, as time went on and he began to face persecution and his disciples did, the crowds thinned out pretty quickly. But at this point, there were large crowds. And so in a sense, Jesus was teaching, yes, the 12 he had called, but he was teaching everyone that day who had various degrees of interest in Jesus' teaching. But the word disciple is used also in a very strict sense, mathete. It refers to somebody who is so enamored with a rabbi that he would attach himself to that rabbi. He would be a mathetes, a disciple, a follower of that rabbi. He would study everything that rabbi ever taught and wrote. He would watch the rabbi and how he reacted to certain situations and try to imitate the rabbi in his affections, attitudes, and actions. That's what it meant to be a disciple, a follower of a rabbi. And the Bible says God has called us to be not just converts. We are called to be disciples of Christ. People who model Jesus' attitudes, his actions, his affections. In fact, let me give you this definition of a disciple that came from the late Dallas Willard. It's so key to understanding what our Christian life is all about. To be a disciple means for me to live my life as Jesus would live my life if he were I. Let me say it again. To be a disciple means to live my life as Jesus would live my life if he were I. We get this completely backwards. We think that to be a follower of Christ means trying to transport ourselves mentally back 2,000 years ago to first century Israel and 
we ask ourselves, okay, what if I were Jesus? What would I do? What if I were walking those dusty Galilean roads and we're working in my father's carpenter's shop? And, you know, what if I were Jesus? How would I live my life? No, that's not the point. It's just the opposite. It's not about me going back. It's saying if Jesus were here today and he were living my life, what would he do? How would he treat my mate? What would he say to my children? How would he conduct his work at my place of business? What would he do with whatever amount of money God has entrusted me to me? That's what it means to be a disciple, to live as Jesus were to live if he were I. So the whole message of the Sermon on the Mount is exactly that, how we're to live our life, not 2,000 years ago, but how to live in this world, and particularly how to live in your world. That's what we're going to discover in this sermon. And that leads to a discussion of how are we to interpret the Sermon on the Mount. Now, I'm going to make a confession here. Many of you probably already realize this. And that is, in 40 plus years of preaching, I have never done a series on the Sermon on the Mount. I preached one message because I had to uh, when I was going through Luke and Luke chapter 6, but it was only one message. In 40 plus years, I've never preached on the Sermon on the Mount. You know why that is? For longer than I care to admit to, I felt like the sermon was irrelevant to life today. I didn't think it had any relationship to life right now. You say, how could you even think that, Pastor? I'll share that with you in just a moment. There are a lot of people who think that. There are a lot of theologians who think that, but they're wrong. In fact, there are three wrong ways to interpret the Sermon on the Mount. One way is to look at this sermon as a list of requirements to enter into heaven. That's the most simplistic reading Jesus is giving us a checklist of what we have to do to enter into the kingdom of heaven. You find the phrase, the kingdom of heaven, used throughout this series in the Sermon on the Mount. So he's just saying, do this, 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 and this, and you'll enter into heaven. But even a casual reading of the Sermon on the Mount makes you realize if that's the case, he's asking us to do the impossible. I mean, we have this idea that the Old Testament, oh, that's really hard to live by, but the New Testament is easy because it's grace. It's just the opposite. Jesus' standard here is harder than any standard found in the Old Testament. For example, in the Old Testament, it says, don't murder another person and don't sleep with somebody's wife. Now, if you check that off, you're okay, right? Jesus is going to say in the Sermon on the Mount, it's not enough to murder somebody Don't hate them. Don't even be angry with them. It's not enough to sleep with the wrong person. Don't even think about it. Don't even lust after that person. That is a much harder standard to keep. And if Jesus is giving us an impossible list of requirements for a non-Christian to keep in order to enter into heaven, Jesus is no better than the Pharisees that he talked about in Matthew 23, 4 and 13. He said the Pharisees, they tie heavy loads on the backs of men so that they are incapable of entering in to the kingdom of heaven. Now, this is not a list of requirements to enter into heaven. Some people, secondly, wrongly interpret this as a roadmap for social justice. A roadmap for social justice. Brief history lesson here at the beginning of the 20th century, 
there were many people who preached what we now call the social gospel. And these Christians, and non-Christians really too, believed that the Sermon on the Mount was a roadmap for social reform, and that if society would simply conform itself to the ethical teachings of Jesus, we would have a better world. And those who were Christians who embraced that developed what we know in eschatology, the study of end times, as the post-millennial viewpoint. The idea was that we can bring God's kingdom now to the world by following the teachings of Jesus. And the world is going to get better and better the more we follow Christ. And finally, it will get so good that Jesus in heaven will say, I just have to come back to earth. It's such a wonderful place to be. And he will establish his millennium after we have basically built the kingdom of God. That's the post-millennial viewpoint. You kind of laugh when I say that. But many people believe that. Dr. George W. Truett, the wonderful pastor of our church for 50 years, like many Baptists, was a post-millennialist. He believed that the world was going to get better and better as we won people to Christ and instituted Christian leaders, that it would be a better place until finally the millennium would arrive. But that was the first of the 20th century. After a few decades two world wars, mass genocides, recessions, and a number of other social maladies, people realized the world was not getting better and better. They realized we're not going to bring in the kingdom of God. And so we have adopted the premillennial viewpoint. That is that Jesus Christ has to come before the kingdom of God comes on earth. Only he can set up the kingdom of God. And so some people, uh, many people have given up on the post-millennial idea, but there's a new iteration of it that has appeared in recent days called the social justice movement. And you find that among many Christians. They believe that it is the primary duty of the church to institute the kingdom of God on earth and to rid the world of every injustice that we can. That is really what the so-called Great Commission is all about. Now, let me be very clear. As Christians, we should speak out against injustice. We should speak out against racism or the murder of the unborn through abortion or the suspension of basic human rights and biblical rights like the right of free speech and the right of free assembly. We ought to speak out against injustice, but we need to keep in mind the primary assignment that God gave us in the Great Commission is not to reform this present world. It is to prepare people for the next world by introducing them to faith in Jesus Christ. That is the mission of the church. And so that's why this is a sincere but a sincerely misguided effort to simply view the uh, Sermon on the Mount as a roadmap to social justice. Context, context, context. We can't pick and choose our favorite themes. In order to truly understand what Jesus was teaching us, it's imperative that we respect the context in which Jesus delivered his famous Sermon on the Mount. 
Well, we're off to a great start in this brand new teaching series. And to make the most of our study, I'm suggesting that you reach out and request my brand new hardcover book called 18 Minutes with Jesus, Straight Talk from the Savior about the things that matter most. In this new study, we'll address relevant topics like your happiness, your faith walk, your relationships, and even your sex life. Ten topics in all. Plus, when you respond today, I'll also include ten encouragement cards. Each one identifies a major teaching point from Jesus and shows you how you can apply these principles in your life. These encouragement cards are printed in a convenient format so that you can carry them with you or display them on your desk or anywhere in your home as a daily reminder about spending time with Jesus. Both my book, 18 Minutes with Jesus, and the encouragement cards are yours when you give a generous gift to support the ministry of Pathway to Victory. Remember that when you give generously, you're empowering us to bring the light of God's truth into the dark places of our world. That's what the Great Commission is all about. And with supportive friends like you, we're pushing back the forces of darkness so that people can truly see the life-changing power of Jesus. David? Thanks, Dr. Jeffress. To receive a copy of the brand new book by Dr. Robert Jeffress called 18 Minutes with Jesus, simply contact the Ministry of Pathway to Victory with a generous gift. Give us a toll-free phone call, 866-999-2965, or visit our website, that's at ptv.org. Now, when you give $100 or more, we'll also send you the complete collection of audio and video discs for the 18 Minutes with Jesus teaching series. You'll get that along with a study guide. One more time, call 866-999-2965 or go online, that's at ptv.org. You could also send your gift by mail. Write to P.O. Box 223-609, Dallas, Texas, 75222. Again, that's P.O. Box 223-609, Dallas, Texas, 75222. I'm David J. Mullins, inviting you to join us again next time for part two of the message, 18 Minutes with Jesus, right here on Pathway to Victory. Pathway to Victory with Dr. Robert Jeffress comes from the pulpit of the First Baptist Church of Dallas, Texas.